The following program is intended for mature audiences. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. It's Big Boom Radio Friday, people, so it's time once again for the Big Boom Radio podcast, Riffs and Rants, with Johnny Teflon and Michael Sean Lee. Both barrels, both sides, and a lot of good music, too. All I know is this violates every canon of respectable broadcasting. Indeed it does, my friend, indeed it does. And we'll be right back, folks, after the first gem of the day. Thank you. 
meanwhile, I was still thinking. Still thinking. I'm telling you. And the only reason I know that that's thinking and not drinking. Which it would be a good right? drinking would it's be like good. It's like interchangeable. Yes, it would. It would. But according to like the karaoke screen, it's, yes. it says thinking. So. Oh, all right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. A little nod to uh, to Johnny Teflon's earlier days, right there, folks. <laughs> Cheap entertainment, folks. And where that's, it's at. That's... But I don't need to tell you. Look what you're doing right now. <laughs> Woof. Jesus. Tell us about that song, yeah, Michael. Yeah, all right. Yeah, <laughs> let me get us out of this. Uh, that, of course, was uh, T-Rex doing... Uh, the, actually, the song title is Get It On, yep. and in parentheses, Bang A Gong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was from their 1971 uh, glam-era opus, uh, Electric Warrior. Uh, it, uh, interesting, interesting little uh, tidbit on that. Uh, according to Mark Bolin, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, that song was inspired by the Chuck Berry tune, Little Queenie. Huh. Which the Rolling Stones did a brilliant version of on "Get Your Yaya's Out," I believe. But uh, that last line, meanwhile, I was still thinking, is a direct lift from the Chuck Berry tune "Little Queenie." Huh. So yeah, Bolin had good yeah, Bolin had good influences, man, good influences. And yeah, that album was just the monster of the glam rock era, uh, which is why we open the show with it. We're going to focus in on that that time period. Uh, of the 1970s and uh, the glam rock music that came with it, uh, all three bands from the glam rock era. Yep. And uh, and yeah, we're gonna have a little fun with this. I've really been looking forward to doing this tonight. I really. Well, now have. we can have fun with it, but you know, trust me, folks, it was a nightmare picking out three gems <laughs> for tonight. I know. I mean, I was just like, Oof, I, uh, I got nothing. It was it was difficult. It was a challenge. Well, especially but... with that first one. As much as I like some T Rex. Um, I'm also the one fan of Power Station from, from the 80s. <laughs> right. And I, I really, really uh, like their version of, a of bad influence. Bang a Gong. A bad influence, John. But, you know, this version actually got a whole new lease on life when, I guess maybe about five years ago, yeah. uh, TBS used it as their theme for the NBA playoffs that wow. year. So, of course, every five seconds ad nauseum, they're running ads for it. No doubt. And I was like, that's interesting. And I was a little, 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 I don't know. Left out and hurt that they didn't use the power station version, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, whatever. It's okay. It's all good. Oh, you it and your suited, power station. It's it. It's suited you and your Robert purposes. Palmer worship. I am. I'm uh, a big Robert Palmer mark, yeah. as they say. Well, he did surround himself with some very attractive ladies back then. I must exactly. say. Exactly. I must say. But so, that's a story for another day. Indeed, it is. Today's uh, mo, if you will. Wow, the world's gone to shit quick. Hasn't it? <laughs> In case we haven't mentioned that yet in 146 episodes, we're doing it now. This is our operandi, folks. Right. And uh, just banding about the general conversation with Michael and I, you know, I, I believe I just raised it to you like, let's just do an episode on, like, where have all the good guys gone? Not to quote that heinous Paula Cole song, yeah. but just, you know, where exactly did the lines between good and bad or good and evil get so friggin' blurry that we're looking now, not just um, for a change of pace, but as the standard, we all root for anti-heroes. Yeah, well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. That is the standard. Welcome to the Freak Show. Right. You know, uh, the anti-hero concept is a very cynical one, which I think is, is very fitting uh, for these days, and the the era that we're going to focus in on, the the 1970s, uh, that was the introduction to heroes that weren't uh, necessarily wearing the white hat, so to speak. Correct. You know, prior to that, it was very clearly defined 
the good guys wore the white hats, the bad guys wore the black literally. hats. Literally. You know? <laughs> and yeah, literally, quite literally. And yeah, during that time period, which, you know, obviously uh, coincided with a very turbulent time in the nation's history, mm-hmm. you know, we started to uh, wrap our brains around the concept that, you know, the guys that we're going to talk about tonight weren't pure. Right. You know, they, they were conflicted. Uh, they had depth. They had layers. But inevitably, in every single situation, the people that were around them, the, the characters that surrounded them, were far, far worse. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, man. I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. Yeah. Far, far worse. And it's definitely a case of, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel that always in some way, shape, or form, you know, uh, a society's entertainment mirrors that society. Yeah. And no place in art is that more evident, I think, than in motion pictures. Yeah, no doubt. Because now you're seeing it on this 30-foot screen, the current state of mind, you know, what, yeah. what people are afraid of, what people are celebrating, yeah. what people would like to see happen, what people consider a hopeful future. Or what, you know, people go back in the past to reinvent to make themselves feel better about it. Yeah. And yeah, in a blink of an eye, you know, using the, uh, the old trope of the Westerns, even though the old, old Westerns were in black and white, you could tell that their outfits were, were borderline cartoonish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And let's say, you know, you might have Roy Rogers toting around with his, with his guitar, which was as important in his movies as a six-shooter, okay? <laughs> yeah. And a blink of an eye, we've gone from that to the Sergio Leone Westerns from Italy featuring Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, yeah. who was as colorful as a dusty-ass poncho. This is true. And the guns were certainly more important, and there was no guitar straps. Yeah, you're not, not going to beat people with a guitar in this The days one. of the yeah. troubadour were over. Well, I think another commonality that a lot of these guys had, these characters from these movies, was they were reluctant heroes. Yes. You know, they were guys that, you know, were put in situations and it was just like, oh, shit. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah. You know, I got to step up. Often a tragedy. Yeah. Is what, you know. Is the motivator. Exactly. And we were throwing around, you know, different characters, you know, that fit the bill, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, just to throw out some of the low hanging fruit on this particular tangent of tragedy creating the hero. Yeah. um, Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Great example. Dr. Paul Kersey. Great example. Wife, daughter, murdered, raped. Um, boom. He turns into a vigilante. Yeah. Uh, Mad Max. You know, Max Rokotansky. Yep. Cop. Yep. Wife and, and uh, young child gets murdered by these bikers, and he goes after him. Yeah. I mean, taxi driver. You know, De Niro's guy just flips out because... Travis just, Bickle. There you go. Travis Bickle. Not exactly the name you'd give a quote-unquote hero. No. You know? He's yeah. not Joe Smith or something like that. And yeah, you know, all of these characters are conflicted. And as you watch these movies and you watch these stories unfold, a lot of times you were kind of reluctant, you know, to, 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 to get behind these guys, to pull for these guys. It wasn't quite as, as cut and dried as it had been prior to going in. And, but at a lot of times, I think, too, that you saw, despite the conflict, despite the nuance, despite the fact that these guys weren't pure that they were letting their better nature rise up and, and you know, dictate their actions. Totally. Yep. And, uh, and, yeah, I, I, you know, a couple different characters that I dug up as well um, and a couple different people that, obviously, you'd be reluctant to get behind. Um, 
and we were talking about this pre-show. Um, the classic is Michael Corleone. Yes. You know, from The Godfather. You know, you see him go through a transition, a character arc. You know, he's this, this pure, you know, great American war hero. Mm-hmm. Becomes everything that he prior to loathed. Right. And yet it's still, you're kind of pulling for the guy. You know, and you're seeing the conflict and you're like, you know, kind of hoping he, he finds a way to rise above it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's it's very metaphorical amongst other things. Sure, and uh, you know that was one of the obvious characters when we started talking about this that that came to mind. Um, another character, or actually two characters, I like to cite from the French Connection: uh, Popeye Doyle, you know, played mm-hmm. by Gene Hackman, and Cloudy Russo, played by Roy Scheider. Yep, you know, these guys are not. <laughs> Not what you'd call "quote unquote" heroes, right? You know, but they they kind of rise up. And another thing about these movies, in particular, the French Connection that we're talking about, is you didn't have the nicely wrapped up with a bow happy ending to the movie. Yep. You know, at the end of uh, the French Connection, Popeye shoots a cop. He shoots another cop. Now, granted, it's been well established that the cop he shoots is a roaring asshole, mm-hmm. and you're kind of like, oh, cool. You know, he shot that guy. Right. Well, the same thing in, in The Godfather. Yeah. He made his bones by killing not just a, a dirty gangster, uh, Virgil Salazzo, yeah. but also Captain McCluskey, because he was dirty. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to settle the family business. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, again, conflicted people, conflicted sure. heroes, and really far more realistic, far more identifiable, I guess, than the Gene Autrys, if you will, or even like sure. the John Waynes. He's probably the epitome of the, yep. you know, hero archetype not conflicted right you know he's he's well here's there's a, a low hanging pitch right down your alley okay since you're the marvel guy okay about when did the punisher character come out i do remember the punisher character that wasn't and i wasn't a big reader of that particular comic back in the day i right. was you know a huge huge fan of spider-man the avengers iron man the hulk but I do remember the Punisher being a very intriguing character because he was very dark. Right, and he was the first one that was a, well, you, you could say all these costume adventurers or vigilantes, but he was the first one that was come out just killing people. And he and was, he was he, killing he, bad guys, but yeah. he was still killing people. But didn't have superpowers. Didn't, and made was, no apologies. No, he was a regular <laughs> guy. And yes, that's another thing, too. Marked very, by tragedy. Very, very unapologetic about yep. what he was doing. In his mind, it was justified. You know, he, again, wasn't necessarily the pure character, but the people he was taking out were far, far worse. Right. You know, they were definitely evil dudes. And you you could say, you know, the same thing for Batman, the way that character's pretty much always existed. Yeah. But if you look at the arc, because now Batman literally has been around for 80 years, if you can wrap your arms around that. That's crazy, isn't it? Wow. But if you look at, you know, his his lifespan, it's, it's a roller coaster of peaks and valleys of how the character's gotten grittier, yep. and then they cleaned it up, and then it got grittier. And each yep. time he goes into that valley, it goes a little grittier. Yep. And yeah, even in the 70s, it's like the forgotten era, because people forgot he even existed. It was that hangover from the TV show where everything yeah. was all cutesy and campy. Oh, yeah. But his, in my opinion, his darkest stuff was in the late seventies when Robin was doing his own thing somewhere else. Yeah. And he was just it was just gritty. It was oh, yeah. almost scary. I was always far more a fan of the Batman like character than the Superman like character. Oh totally. You yeah. Know? 
Um, nuance, you know, was always, I've, I've always find it very intriguing. Uh, a good character um, that comes to mind when I'm thinking of that is the Jake Giddis character that uh, Jack Nicholson played in Chinatown. Yep. yep. You know, he's kind of a slimy private detective kind of dude. You know, he kind of makes his money off other people's misery, cheating husbands and all this other shit. Right. But in the course of Chinatown, he's confronted with a situation and his character arc, he rises to the occasion. Sure. You know, in the end, he's, he's you know, rallying to defend the Faye Dunaway character. You know, he's, he's obviously identified the evil character that John Huston played. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember what their names were. Uh, Marilyn Mulray, if I remember correctly, was the Faye Dunaway part. And Noah Cross, of course, was the, the John Huston uh-huh. character. And that's, that's a classic example of what I'm talking about. Giddis is a flawed hero, but John Huston's character, Noah Cross, evil son of a bitch. Right, All right. right. He raped his daughter. <laughs> All right. And he's trying to get the kid that, you know, his daughter, you know, subsequently got pregnant with. He's trying to get her back. You know, Faye Dunaway's character is trying to hide her from the old man. And it's like, again, compared to Jake Giddis and whatever, you know, sleazy shit he got up to, you know, as a private detective, is nothing compared to Noah Cross, who's filthy, sick, wealthy. And and people know that. You know, there's a difference between being innately evil and being a little, I don't know, world weary or jaded. Yeah. Okay. We're all. We're, that's that's us. That's Joe Q. Public. Yeah. Literally. But, and you touched on an important thing. And that, in, in order for the antihero to work, the antagonist of the story has to be pure, unadulterated evil. Far, far so worse. So that everybody can worse. recognize a mile away. Yep. And it helps. It it, it lends a sympathetic um, lean. Yeah. To. The, the protagonist of the story. Yeah. So no matter how bad they are, all their flaws, okay, another good example, all right, why this movie uh, works so well for its time, Lethal Weapon. Right. Mel Gibson's character. Yeah. Suicidal, obviously kind of crazy, doesn't do things by the book, because normally, if they made Lethal Weapon 10 years earlier, Danny Glover's character would have been the hero Mel Gibson's character would have been kind of almost like the villain mm. that you'd be watching the whole time. Like something in the old days, like a Peter Lorre might play. <laughs> or, you know, you're like, okay, that, that's going to wind up being the bad guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, but well, in well, this case... Yeah, and, and just like the Giddish character from Chinatown, he rises up in the end. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be a hero. He wants no part of it. Right. You know, I mean, God, the first half of the movie, he's just trying to, trying to talk himself out of shooting himself in the head every night. Yeah. You know, but he's confronted with a situation and he steps his shit up. He steps his game up just like Jack Giddis, or Jack Nicholson does um, as the Giddis character in Chinatown. He's confronted with this ugly, ugly situation. And initially he's not going there. Right. You know, he's going to get his money and get the hell out. But then he has a sudden change of heart and it's just he's so reluctant, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's what that's what people identify with. And I think, you know, you we got to give a, a tip of the hat to arguably the first person um, just overall, as an entertainer that exploited the the antihero persona, yeah, was probably Johnny Cash, just by being the Man in Black. Interesting thought. Because Interesting thought. it was he was righteous, he was pious, but he had a load of scars on his soul. Yes, he did, and made no bones about it. And that's what gave him legitimacy. <laughs> exactly. That's what made him identifiable to the quote unquote every man. Right. You know, and you know, it it seems like, you know, in tough times and difficult times. 
you know, kind of like now where people are very unsure of where things are going and where we're going to end up, you're kind of looking for that guy. Yeah. You know, the, the, the guy, he's one of us, you know, and that's, that's an old trope that goes back to Joseph Conrad, you know, and, and what eventually became Apocalypse Now, uh-huh. um, where it's the regular guy, right. you know, just a Joe Schmo, yep. you know, and he finds it in himself to rise above his circumstances and, and be that guy, you yeah. know, and I'm even reluctant to use the term hero because it, I, I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me go, Ugh, you know? No, but you're, you're touching on a very important aspect of it and um, to extend the comparison you're making. Yeah. You know, we all do flock to someone who's had or is in the middle of a journey similar to, I'm sure you were referencing, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. We, we like our heroes with scars now. Goddamn right. Yeah. And it's very difficult to sell to the masses uh, a hero that doesn't have that. Yeah. We need those flaws because you, you nailed it. Without that, we can't relate to them because yeah. we're all flawed. It makes them identifiable. You go, oh, yeah, I understand that. Yep. Maybe that's why you know America is so into redemption stories. Totally. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of sick that we love to build somebody up and tear them down. So it's like they get a shot at redemption. It's like, yeah. okay, we've destroyed you now. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, are Everybody you gets step a second up or chance. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially in Hollywood. Look, Darth Vader gets a second <laughs> yeah. chance. Yes. Classic example right there. Right. Thank you, Star Wars geek. Classic <laughs> example. I, I'm, I'm kind of bummed I didn't think of that. Well, the, the whole thing is a redemption arc. Yes. You know, and personally, I like him better as a bad, bad, bad man. But eh, it's kind of cool when he lifts up the Emperor and returns to the Jedi. tosses his ass. Gets and, lightninged yeah. up and boop. He saves his son. His son's going to die. Right. And it's like he has that moment of conflict. Like, mm-hmm. you know, am I going to let this go? You know, and you could see him, even though you can't see the face of the actor, you can see the Darth Vader just by the body uh, signals. He's conflicted. He's like, right. you know, I don't know if I should do anything about this. And then the end, he says, F it. I'm, yeah. I'm killing the emperor. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's noble shit right yeah. there. It really and, is. and again, you know, going back to like the Batman example in the 1989 movie, the way they tell the Joker origin. You know, Batman could have saved them, but no, he's like, eh, this guy's a piece of shit. Yeah. Let's go over his hand, drops him in the acid. Even in, in The Untouchables, Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness has Frank Nitty, you yeah. know, and he was going to drop him. He pulls him up until the guy talks shit about yeah. Sean Connery's character, yep. saying he squealed like a stuck pig, and then boop, boop screw right, you. right off done. the roof, you know. And that's when the Elliot Ness character becomes identifiable. Yes. You know, up until that point, he's freaking Captain America. Right. You know, he's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, hoity-toity, whatever. Yep. And then he lets Nitty go, and he's like, you know, did it sound like that? Is it going down? <laughs> you know? And you're like, yeah, I can identify with that. I would have let yeah. that bastard fall. Screw him. And maybe the, uh, you know, from a cinematic perspective, the top of the mountain would be the movie, the Western, Unforgiven. Right. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And his dialogue between him and the quote-unquote good guy, Gene Hackman. I don't deserve this. To die like this. I was building a house. Deserves got nothing to do with it. You know, Deserves got nothing to do exactly. with it. Exactly. Yep. You know, That's because, yeah, he was the good guy, but he was heavy-handed. You know, he turned a blind eye to the to the, the working gals who were abused. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 
and he was, his he, ego got got to him. He, his totally. ego got away with him. Yeah, and he set himself up. And then on the flip side, you got this Clint Eastwood character who's got god awful scars. Yep. You know when he when he says you're William Money, you killed women and children, and he he cops to it. He's like, yeah, I killed, killed everything around that crawled that ever walked or crawled <laughs> exactly. But now I'm gonna kill That's you, the little Bill. Rolls behind him. Exactly. Just, yeah. You know he kind of. Rises, he kind of does a Lazarus thing. He rises up, and it's like yep. at that point, you're almost forgiving him for all the foul shit you know he did back in the day because he's coming to avenge his buddy, yep, you know, who was tortured, murdered, Ned. which was, yeah, just out of control. <laughs> you don't torture and murder Morgan Freeman, you, you know, don't do that. no, no, no don't it's a that. bad idea, it's a bad idea every time. <laughs> America's sweetheart, yeah, you know, and yeah, that's a, that's a, a classic example right there, and it's it's very identifiable. I yeah. guess you could say. So winners, you know. So we presented this to you know the masses. Yeah, I gave her two cents. We did. Uh, my only concern, because look, it is what it is, and it works, and that's how things are going to be. Whether it's you know movies, literature, music. My only concern is that at at some point, well, the ultimate concern is the day we all stop caring. Period. Right. And the lines between good and bad become. Not just compartmentalized, but self-serving. Well, the, the the danger, and I think what you're alluding to, is that people accept it. Yeah, you know, and that's yeah, that's a scary thought. Right. You know that that there isn't, you know, that that person out there, be it a man or a woman or some strange mix of both, um, that rises up. Right. You know, that stands up. That says, "All right." You know, enough. Yeah. We've, or we've even, gone over the line. Even as, yeah. as a profession, you know, I am one of those people that says 99% of the men and women in uniform, the police, good bunch of Joes and Janes, not making a lot of money, putting their lives on the line. Yeah. And nothing has ever swayed me. You know, not all my interactions with, you know, the boys and girls in blue have been perfect. <laughs> I, I will be transparent, but yeah, I've lived a long and colorful life. You know, I can probably relate to that, John, without going into great detail. But anyway. But yet nothing has ever black blurred and that. Yeah, it's, it's never that black and white. Nothing has ever blurred to the point where it's like, I, I'm not going to call these people if I need help. You know, you could say the same about soldiers and people in the military or, or firemen and firewomen. So you're kind of witnessing a juxtaposition here, folks, because up until now, I was the optimist. Johnny was the cynic. <laughs> so we've kind of traded places here. Ah, but you know what? Yes. Along with my cynicism, okay. it's balanced or destroyed by my eternal idealism. Okay. That will never be beaten out of me. Yeah. Many have tried. Uh -huh. It's never going to happen. So I just hope that, you know, people in positions like the ones I just mentioned who are oft vilified because of the the vast minority of bad apples in a bunch. Yeah. And there are bad apples, right? Yes, but they don't spoil the bunch. And I, I hope people that do that job, you know, realize that, yeah, you're, you're still a good guy. And I yeah. hope parents, as they're raising their children up, regardless of where they live or what color their skin is or what their religion is, you know, people that are civil servants that serve society. Yeah. Teachers, I'm going to put them in the same group. You know, they're, they're doing this because they care about their fellow man. They're certainly not doing it for the money. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's kind of funny because I think you just hit on the common ground, despite the fact that Johnny's a Republican, I'm a Democrat. We're both, at the end of the day, have that that undercutting of idealism. I guess you could even call it hope. You know that. You could. Yeah. yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know, despite all our differences, that's that's an area where we are in mutual agreement. And I tend to think that you know, if people would focus more on 
where we do agree as opposed to where we don't, right. you know, we'd, we'd be in a better situation. So before we call for a lynching of every politician <laughs> out there... Another common ground he and I Another have. common oh, ground. Yes. Let's jump to yet another common ground, which is just procuring tasty gems. That sounds like a hell of an idea. Home. A hell of an idea. <laughs> Bring it, Johnny. Well... This middle one is one near and dear to our hearts. Hell yeah. Uh, from another quintessential glam rock band from the 70s known as The Sweet. Yes. And most of you know their famous tune, Ballroom Blitz, which admittedly I am not a fan of. <laughs> well, Power Station didn't do a version, so, you know. I, yeah. Okay, you just settle down over there. <laughs> I will throw this mic at you. But notwithstanding, yes. uh, there's plenty of other ones they did. So we oh, settled God, on yes. this other little ditty called Love is Like Oxygen. Nice. And we're going to play it for you now. We'll be back in a few minutes with some more things and stuff.
Oh, yeah. Yes, love is like oxygen. You know, I don't think anybody ever equated love and oxygen prior to that song, but people were like, you know, yeah. Right? Yeah. Them hippie boys with the shiny pants are on to something. <laughs> huh? That's you, Middle America. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> so, like I said, the name of the song is Love is Like Oxygen by the Sweet, which sometimes they just call themselves Sweet. Sometimes it's the sweet. All depends on who you ask. All depends on who you ask. And that came out in 1978 when I was just a small lad. And uh, Michael, uh, when we were listening to All the Possibilities today, said, I don't know, that might be a little little too disco. Well, you know, but at the same time, the sweet it was iconic to the glam rock era. Oh, yeah, which totally. is Which is... You know, the reasoning that uh, that we used to put it out there, notwithstanding the fact it's a great tune. Well, the reason I mentioned uh, the disco tangent, because yeah. we looked at a couple songs, folks, and they were running long, and we're like, what the heck? Yeah. And this was the period where rock and roll was lending a lot of its stuff out to the disco text. And like many songs, yes, there was a separate version of this song. That's right. That came out at the exact same time. That 20 was, minutes long? Well, 6 minutes and 78 seconds. Which is the same as 20 minutes right. in radio talk. Uh, and it was just, of course, just for disco. Because who can dance to a three-minute song? It's got to be at least six minutes. This is true. So there you go. Besides that, we've done a lot of cocaine. Three minutes is not going to work. you got to right. keep it going. you got to keep it going. Yep. I'm not... Speaking from experience, oh, yeah, by the way, this is a character you play on what radio. I've, what yeah. I've heard <laughs> and researched. But truth be told, you yes. know, I used to uh, I used to call these uh, DJ songs. Yeah, because early on when I was DJing, I was also a prolific smoker. Yeah, and uh, you know sometimes that Shania Twain mega mix would just come in handy because it was eight minutes long. Yeah, and I'll lump with that pretty much anything by Pink Floyd, Stairway to Heaven, Hotel California. <laughs> Because I'd, I'd, I'd smoke a 1,000, a nice conversational-sized cigarette. There we go. And I wanted to take my time. So oh, yeah. one or two of those songs up, I could disappear. Oh, yeah. Well, from what I understand, in the early days of radio, and this obviously is not Johnny's Ilk, but this was, you know, the reason why, you know, FM radio in the 1970s, they would play these songs. They could go upstairs and smoke a joint on a roof. Right. And then come back down and be all groovy and, and shit. And it's all you know? taken care of. Yeah. You know, just do it on the corner so you got... In that case, 15 minutes to go, disappear. There you go. Do whatever. Yes. So, yeah, that was uh, our middle gem by this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. We'll probably keep listening to it. But we played that one, as we alluded to earlier, um, because uh, our sub-segment is all about the little niche of rock and roll, and Lord knows there's so many, Indeed. that occurred primarily in the early 70s, known as... Glam rock. All right, all right, all right. Yes. Which it it, it kind of funnily, you know, in connecting to our opening topic, it coincided with the launch of the antihero. You know, you can, you know, research and theorize deeply into that one. But, uh, but yeah, the glam rock era was a lot of fun. And even though it lasted for all of 15 minutes, (laughs) cup of coffee. uh, Yeah, indeed. It, it, (laughs) Its effect reverberated for years and years and years afterwards, sure. which is what I think makes it significant. Yeah. And not only that, but these bands were a lot of fun. I a mean, lot. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like, you know, if you start asking yourself, which we did, you know, is this glam rock? Is this glam rock? <laughs> yes. The easiest way to identify it is if footage exists of the particular band yes. playing in a somewhat live environment. Yeah, which is funnily like 
Funnily, is that a word? It Funnily? is now. It is now. <laughs> How Johnny and I decided on the gems, yes. we, is we punched up the videos, and it's like, okay, platform shoes, check. Yep. Glitter makeup, <laughs> check. You know, it, and, it, we, and we, we did have fun with ELO, which came so close to being oh, included. Man, so close. And the funniest part was I said, well, okay, they got to have the outfits, the, the giant Sally Jesse Raphael sunglasses. And I'm like, what we really need, though, is like some Zack Snyder lighting effects with like stuff haloing out. Exactly, and, yes. And, and flares off the lights. And yep. at that moment, the lighting just gleamed off the guy's drum kit. I was like, yep. Bang. There. Done. <laughs> he qualifies. Thank and what's, you. What's the actual name of the hat that I was referencing it? Oh, God. It's not a beanie. And it's not a bowler. It's, it's kind of like a scally but bigger and floppier. Yeah. And then we came to the conclusion, folks, that really the wardrobe of any of these members of, of these glam rock bands, if you ever watch an old episode of Fat Albert, yes. any one of the Fat Albert kids, <laughs> any one of their outfits translates to yep. glam rock. Yep, totally, totally. <laughs> Again, the effect, you know, the effect it had. Yes. You know, and it's funny because, and I know this is controversial as hell these days, but it, which is funny because it was controversial back then too. But the introduction to the idea of androgyny. It's time for androgyny. Here comes Pat. Like yeah. the effect it had on fashion that blew down a lot of lot of restrictions on what guys in particular could wear. Sure. You know, it's like okay, you know, we can wear that stuff now. Yep. You know, we're not we're not doing this ultra um, testosterone out rock and roll thing. And the same thing applies to the women. I mean, yeah. look at the Runaways. Yeah, they're not running around in, in pleated skirts. No, they definitely are not. <laughs> it's and, and I guess the most popular outfit for anybody of this genre was a a satiny suit that was two sizes too small. Yeah. So that that's how you got around the androgyny thing. Yeah. You could Bell see what bottoms, they were, folks. Flares. <laughs> you know, I don't know how they danced in those shoes that they wore. <laughs> the platform yeah you know oh my god you know yep the ascots yeah. uh you know never never turned down a scarf an opportunity to wear a scarf exactly. on stage and what what we found <laughs> yeah really or multiple scarves bad perms indeed <laughs> what we found out in researching and going through the whole glam rock thing is there's really only what six maybe seven bands not a whole lot that yep. actually made up the glam rock era but, you know, those bands that did, God, did they make their impression. And because of that, we were able to, you know, believe it or not, each come up with our personal top three glam rock bands. Yeah. With a, a sample of, you know, one of their big hits. Absolutely. That we Absolutely. identify with them. Yep. So, uh, well, if you don't mind, I'll go first because this it. whole thing is just so damn easy. I know. And fun. And fun. Like everything we do. Indeed. Whether they like it or not. This is true. So right off the bat, I mean, I couldn't even have this conversation without bringing up Kiss. Bang. Because, I mean, look, costumes, personas, marketing, they had dolls for Christ's sake. Oh, yeah. These Appearing guys... on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. What's oh, more yeah. glamorous than that? They, they took it and they blew it up. Yep. They just blew it up. And it didn't, it wasn't an immediate hit. You know, I mean, their live shows you know, went off. They packed them, you know, to the rafters. But they couldn't sell any albums <laughs> um, until, I think, originally Kiss Alive, which came out, what, 75, I think? I think so, yeah. And, uh, and then suddenly people discovered them, and, you know, the rest, as they yeah. say, is history. And really, with their songs, you, you can pick any one of them. I threw out there, uh, Do You Love Me, just because they, they kind of went through this phase where yeah. they would have these songs with 
whatever instrumental going on, but they would just keep repeating the title of the song <laughs> ad nauseum. Yep, yep. I mean, I, I'm not going to go full-blown music critic on these guys because, look, they've, they've earned their stripes. But, yeah, that was a, that was a yeah. Kiss thing. As, as critical <laughs> as people, you know, do get, you know, as far as Kiss's musicianship, musicianship and whatnot, um, Strutter is still one of my favorite tunes, Mine also. period. Yep. You know, never mind Kiss, but, you know, and that was, I believe, 1974. And, uh, yeah, right, right, you know, at the tail end of that glam era. Yep. And, I mean, they were doing stuff. You know, Kiss was obviously influenced heavily by the New York Dolls. The New York Dolls were the epitome of that era, just as far as, you know, the androgyny and, right. you know, the indulgence and whatnot. And, uh, and ironically, uh, right now on HBO, there's a great uh, documentary uh, that David Johansson uh, is featured in. And, you know, they go back and they, you know, take a look at the early era in New York and the music that they were doing at that time. And, man, that shit looks like it was just so much fun. Right. Just, there were no boundaries. Everything was blown away, you know. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, good stuff. And uh, as, as far as bands uh, are concerned, uh, and the list that we created of the bands that exemplified that era, uh, my number three choice is, of course, The Suite. And yes, I do use the sweet. You're one of the the people. Yeah. Okay. Those guys were the epitome <laughs> of it with Little Willie, Fox on the Run, their version of Ballroom Blitz. Yep. I mean, they were just, you know, you think glam, you think those guys. Boom, boom. It's just, yeah, done. Slam dunk. Yeah. Very shiny. Very yeah. shiny. Baby. Shiny. That's, yeah, <laughs> a very good word to describe those guys. <laughs> very shiny. So what else you got, John? Well, my next one... Uh... Some people are going to stick it to themselves because they'll immediately make the connection before I give it to them. Okay. Uh, my number two was a little gal. I mean little. Okay. Uh, Miss Susie Quattro. Yes. Uh, and like her song, Can the Can, comes to mind. But she had a few. She had one. Now, here we go with the connection. Okay. Uh, a little ditty called Devilgate Drive. Yep. Which she performed on an episode of Happy Days. Of course she did. While she played the character of little Leather Tuscadero. Yes. <laughs> God, are we dating ourselves with that one? Because, again, it's the 70s, so your ass one way or the other is going to appear on a TV show or a variety show yep. or something. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> what we were talking about earlier, she was a groundbreaker. You know, there weren't too many chicks back then that rocked, and right. she rocked. She was a huge influence on Joan Jett in particular, um, notwithstanding the rest of the Runaways. You know, again, you know, artists from that era having an effect, you know, a reverberating effect on the artists that came after them. So, yeah, great call on that one. Great call on that one. Next up, um, a band that literally, literally in. Capsul encapsul encapsulated? Yes. Was the epitome of the Glen Rock era. Of course, we are talking about T-Rex. Yep. Uh, Mark Bolin, <laughs> our show opener for tonight. Um, Velvet Goldmine. You remember that movie? That was a celebration of that era. Prominently featured the T-Rex song, 20th Century Boy. It was covered by Placebo. Um, and another great example of the reverberating effect of those artists. Placebo was definitely one of the bands, very, very successful bands that were affected and very much um, created a style that was obviously influenced by T-Rex. Right. And, uh, you know, it's funny, a lot of people don't realize now, because it was so long ago, how huge T-Rex was when they first broke with Electric Warrior. Um, the old saying goes, and they were huge in particular in England, uh, that in the 60s you had Beatlemania, in the 70s you had T-Rex to see. <laughs> People lost their minds over Mark Bolin and T-Rex. 
I mean, just absolutely, absolutely over-the-top stuff. And, you know, he ate it up. He was the epitome of that era. Right. And uh, like all good rock stars do, he died tragically. You right, know? before he could screw it up. Yeah, he went down in a car wreck. His, his girlfriend was driving. Um, little message for any musician out there that's listening to us. Don't let her drive. Anyway, yep. moving right along. <laughs> what else you got, Johnny? Well, again, this this was the easiest topper we've ever done. Oh yeah, because clearly my number one, clearly, clearly, it's got to be Queen. Slam dunk. It's got to be Queen. I mean, this is not only the soundtrack of that that era, but this is young, powerful, no boundaries Queen when they were like throwing in operatic sensibilities onto a rock album. Oh, they were going for it. They totally were. Like everything was on the table. Yeah. You know, Brian May's building his own guitar because he wants a particular sound. Yeah, I mean. yep. and everything about Freddie Mercury's onstage style just screamed of that glam rock era. Yeah, you know, these are guys that didn't just take the influence of that era and run with them; they launched like a rocket right. with those influences. And, and the way uh, Freddie Mercury sang, it's why the man's a legend. Not just because of the, the God-given talent and the octave range that he had. Yeah, but to to you know use a, a phrase from a completely different environment he drove it like he stole it yeah you know and he just just let it just blank just open up his mouth and let himself yeah and the thing was great about freddie that i loved was he was unapologetic about anything right you know this was who he was he was the epitome of stars rock star yeah he was androgynous (laughs) as androgynous gets and if you didn't like it he didn't care and at that time we were still a society that you know what Entertain me, I don't care. Yeah. You know, this is why we had Paul Lynn on the center square of the, <laughs> the Hollywood squares. And Charles Nelson gave, Riley. Right? Yes. Nah, nah, nah. Charles Nelson Riley doing his thing. Nobody cared because they were just entertaining people. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was very compelling. Liberace. Uh, case in point. God, what a glam rock dude he was. He, huh? he was probably the godfather of glam rock if he'd come down to it. Good argument to be made there. <laughs> very good argument. Yeah. Good stuff. Good what stuff. What do you got as your number one, sir? Well, this is painfully obvious. He is the man, the myth, the legend, the absolute master of the glam rock era. Um, and, you know, the epitome of an evolving artist. You love him. I do indeed. <laughs> and I am, of course, talking about the legendary David Bowie. Who just up until, well, recently, was banned <laughs> on this show. Well, you know, kinda, you. you know, in all honesty, we kind of went to the well <laughs> a little bit too frequently early on, you know, back, you know, during episodes one to 50 or so. Right. You know, we, we did go to the well and, uh, and you know, it was all good. And, and I, would, I would like the record to show that, uh, again, folks, no sooner do I lift the man <laughs> than when we sit down the very next time. I'm driving gems. a truck through that bastard. I'm driving a truck oh through it. Here God. we go. I'm bringing it. But, you know, you can't, you can't, in all honesty, you can't talk about glam rock without talking about David Bowie yeah. and the Spiders from Mars, that era. I mean, you want to talk about a guy that just epitomized Completely. that era and was so influential on everybody around him. And I have nothing but respect. Is What did I say to you when you tried to enter him into the arena of this week's gem list? I'm like... Dude, you, you put him on there, he's going to suck the life <laughs> out of the room and these other gems. He makes everybody look like small potatoes. Which is why we saved him for last. Because he's a legend's legend. He is. He is. And, uh, and yeah, it just... 
I mean, the influence that he had. I mean, never mind the fact that he kept evolving, you know, for decades mm-hmm. after that. But the effect he had on on you know every other artist he came in contact with. I mean, he was the ultimate rock chameleon. Yeah, you know, he just absorbed it. You know, I mean, unlike you, he had the time of his life in the eighties, didn't he? Though he did, he kind of did. He you made some like, money. You were like, eh, I don't really care for the eighties. <laughs> oh, he was having a time of his life. <laughs> As was I. Yes. Well, you know, little known fact, I don't know if I'm, I've mentioned this before, but he was my first first rock concert. You've I, never mentioned yeah, that? Yeah, I saw him on the Serious Moonlight Tour. Now it makes sense. Yeah, 1983. And huh. uh, yeah, just blew my face off. Just absolutely blew my face off. He, As he always did, he had an absolutely right. incredible band. Um, the song list was stunning. As a matter of fact, it's funny, um, about a week ago, I don't know why it came up, but I was curious, and I went online to see if that show was out there, and it is. Uh, David Bowie, Foxborough Stadium, 1983. I looked at the song list, and it was like, oh, my God. You know, just just Bowie, the best, you know, from all eras. I mean, the man was, the man was on a roll. Now, not know. to compare and contrast, but just to make you feel better, yes. uh, Let's Dance was my third ever purchased cassette album. Was it really? It was. Nice. So, nice. yes. So I have nothing but a- agreement with you on I this. I think, and <laughs> I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think Stevie Ray Vaughan played on that album. You are correct. Yeah. Yep. And uh, when he toured, Stevie couldn't do it because Stevie was doing his own thing at the time, but Earl Slick came in. And that's just like the epitome of Bowie. It's like, let me choose between the greatest <laughs> guitarists in existence right now and see, you know, which one I want to put in the band and go on tour with, right. you know? Just stunning, stunning stuff. I mean, very much like Miles Davis uh-huh. in that respect of Frank Zappa, where if you have on your resume, you know, I was in Bowie's touring band, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, you're, yeah, upper echelon, <laughs> top of the pops, you know, just, just yeah, stunning. So, so. again, as we might have alluded to, Mr. Bowie... It's going to be our third jam of the episode. Absolutely. And what do you got for that? Uh, well, talk about a tough choice. But uh, I think this was the epitome of uh, what we needed for this topic, and I'll explain it afterwards. But, uh, of course, we're going to go with uh, David Bowie doing Rebel Rebel. You rebel scum. All right, fair enough. Strap yourselves in, gang, and we'll be back in a couple minutes with a little recap and a wrap-up. Stay tuned.
Oh, I feel so much better. Solid tune. <laughs> Good choice and a solid tune. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, of course, that was uh, David Bowie doing Rebel Rebel. That was the lead single from his 1974 classic album, Diamond Dogs. Uh, one of the main reasons why we chose that song uh, to close out this day and this topic was that song is frequently described and frequently regarded as Bowie's farewell to the glam rock era. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as his last great glitter anthem. Um, David went from there to the Diamond Dogs era, which was a drastic change in personalities. And, uh, and yeah, it's it kind of funny. There's a lot of debate, but I believe it was actually David Bowie playing guitar and playing that classic riff uh, on the album. It was not Mick Ronson, his guitarist from the uh, Spiders from Mars era. Uh, a lot of people will debate who played it, who didn't, but... I think at the end of the day, everybody pretty much agrees. The consensus, anyway, is that that was David Bowie playing yeah, guitar he, on that I've track. Always, it's been my understanding he was a decent guitar player, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, going back to that concert that I saw in 83, one of the things that absolutely amazed me is the multi-instrumental talent of David Bowie. He played yeah. guitar during that show. He played piano. He blew sax at one point. No kidding. I mean, just an insanely, insanely talented dude. Huh. You know, just off the just off the chart. Did not know he would man the old woodwinds. Yeah. Being a former sax player myself. Ah, there you go. There you go. A little Weird. little little something about Johnny Teflon, maybe you did not know. <laughs> I didn't say it was good. <laughs> I played them all, but I never said I was good. I got you. I got you. <laughs> all right. So anyway, moving right along. Moving right along. What's going on in Big Boom Radio this week, Johnny? Oh, well, let's see. We got two little post-its and then a, a little aside at the end. All right. So uh, as we mentioned last week, we've got a very special show coming up on July 4th. Yes. When it should be all about Go America, Happy Birthday, Hot Dogs, Apple Pie, and Baseball. We're going in a different direction, folks. Because we're celebrating the Queen, we are. You've been talking about the Queen again? On Independence Day. <laughs> a whole lot of Queen. 24 hours of Queen, as a matter of fact. Wow. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. Johnny's digging deep into his personal stash of Queen <laughs> on this one, folks. <laughs> it will be worth tuning in for the gems that are going to be played that day. It's going to be a huge success unless, of course, the power goes out. So let's yeah. hope there aren't, like, rolling brownouts going on. Oh, dear Lord. But, uh, yeah, yes. I'll, I'll have a plan B, just in case. There we go. So we got that, and then we've got, uh, once again... We are just alive and thriving on the MyTuner app. As far as, you know, if you're not home or goofing off at work yeah. and listening to us right on BigBoomRadio.com, your next best bet is uh, to listen into the station by uh, MyTuner. Nice. It's free, it's easy, and the best part, it works on Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Nice. So you can just take it with you, driving around, doing whatever. Oh, and did he mention it's free? Free. Did, did free? We love yes, free. we do love free. And that kind of sort of brings me to my last little point, which okay. I will keep ever so brief. All right. Let's get ready. Switch me on. We hope that all you folks listening in not only enjoy our show, but... Especially because so much TLC goes into it, the gem choices. <laughs> and nothing would make either one of us happier than if you listen to a particular song and said to yourself, self, I, I want to own that song. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, the amount of time and debate 
that we go through every week we to come up easy. with the gems. And it's, it's not. No, not at Sometimes all. Sometimes we're, we're, we have like machete fights. Yeah. We're talking 100. <laughs> what are we, 148 shows in now? This is 146. 146. So multiply that by a minimum of three. Not mentioning, you know, the numerous shows that we did the special fourth gem for. Yep. Yep. And we try, over the top, try never to repeat ourselves. Right. So as you listen to these songs, you know, look, just go, just to pull something out of the ether, go to iTunes. Generally, the songs are like 99 cents. There you go. Buy it. Then yeah, you nice. own it. Do whatever you want with it. Absolutely. We don't pretend to own rights to anything, looking at you, Spotify. Mm. And there are some people out there, sad but true, that really don't approve of little small town schmoes like us keeping these wondrous songs alive and mixed in with the, the general societal dialogue. They don't they frown on that for some reason. Well, I don't think they realize that we're fans. You yes. know? That's and it's kind of like an educational thing in so much as Look, we're passing along a lot of songs that are kind of obscure and or forgotten. Quite frequently. You know? Yeah. So all I'm trying to say is, unfortunately, whenever you got something good in life, there's some cat wringing his hands like dick dastardly in the background. Is or, this where we kick Spotify in the ass? Hold on. I'm getting Okay. There. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm eager. Or, yeah, just let's, well, <laughs> since you let the cat out of the bag, now, now we can just use their first name, Dick. There we go. And say, look, it's, it's not about the money. Sometimes it's about sharing the music. And I would wager, since clearly we're not making any money off of this podcast, it's never been the mission of this show to make money. Not at all. You would think that most of the artists that produce these songs would line up with us and say, hey, you know what? Thanks for playing a song. Thanks for keeping it alive, you know, and presenting it to a whole new generation, perhaps, of listeners around the world, no less. Just saying. Yeah. Message. That's the goal. That's the goal. You know, we're all part of the same party. So sit back, relax, and enjoy yourself. And on that note, <laughs> thank you for joining us. And as always, I am Johnny Teflon. And I am Michael Sean Lee. And we'll see you all on the flip side.